0: Book One, Part Three of the Histories by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Histories by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Broadrip. Book One, January to March, A.D. 69, Part Three. There was now no doubt about the feeling of all the troops in the camp. So great was their zeal, that not content with surrounding Otho with their persons in close array, they elevated him to the pedestal, on which a short time before had stood the gilt statue of Galba, and there, amid the standards, encircled him with their colours. Neither tribunes nor centurions could approach. The common soldiers even insisted that all the officers should be watched. Everything was in an uproar with their tumultuous cries and their appeals to each other, which were not, like those of a popular assembly or mob, the discordant expressions of an idle flattery. On the contrary, as soon as they caught sight of any of the soldiers who were flocking in, they seized him, gave him the military embrace, placed him close to Otho, dictated to him the oath of allegiance, commending sometimes the emperor to his soldiers, sometimes the soldiers to their emperor." Otho did not fail to play his part. He stretched out his arms, and bowed to the crowd, and kissed his hands, and altogether acted the slave to make himself the master. It was when the whole legion from the fleet had taken the oath to him, that feeling confidence in his strength, and thinking that the men, on whose individual feeling he had been working, should be roused by a general appeal, he stood before the rampart of the camp and spoke as follows. Comrades I cannot say in what character I have presented myself to you. I refuse to call myself a subject, now that you have named me Prince, or Prince while another reigns. Your title also will be equally uncertain, so long as it shall be a question, whether it is the Emperor of the Roman people, or a public enemy, whom you have in your camp. Mark you how in one breath they cry for my punishment, and for your execution. So evident it is that we can neither perish nor be saved except together." Perhaps with his usual clemency, Galba has already promised that we should die, like the man who, though no one demanded it, massacred so many thousands of perfectly guiltless soldiers. A shudder comes over my soul, whenever I call to mind that ghastly entry, Galba's solitary victory, when before the eyes of the capital he gave orders to decimate the prisoners, the suppliants, whom he had admitted to surrender. These were the auspices with which he entered the city, What is the glory that he has brought to the throne? None but that he has murdered Albatronius Sabinus and Cornelius Marcellus in Spain, Batuus Chilo in Gaul, Fonteius Capito in Germany, Claudius Masser in Africa, Sigonius on the high road, Terpilianus in the city, Nymphidius in the camp. What province, what camp in the world, but is stained with blood and foul with crime, or, as he expresses it himself, purified and chastened? For what others call crimes, he calls reforms, and by similar misnomers he speaks of strictness instead of barbarity, of economy instead of avarice, while the cruelties and affronts inflicted upon you he calls discipline. Seven months only have passed since Nero fell, and already acellus has seized more than the Polycleti, the Vatinii, and the Elii amassed. Veneas would not have gone so far with his rapacity and lawlessness had he been emperor himself. As it is, he has lorded it over us as if we had been his own subjects, has led us as cheap as if we had been another's. That one house would furnish the donative, which is never given you, but with which you are daily upbraided. Again, that we might have nothing to hope even from his successor, Galba fetches out of exile the man in whose ill-humour and avarice he considers that he has found the best resemblance to himself. You witnessed, comrades, how by a remarkable storm even the gods discountenanced that ill started option, and the feeling of the Senate, of the people of Rome is the same. It is to your valour that they look, in you these better counsels find all their support. Without you, as noble as they may be, they are powerless. It is not to war or to danger that I invite you. The swords of all Roman soldiers are with us. At this moment Galba has but one half armed cohort which is detaining, not defending him. Let it once behold you, let it receive my signal, and the only strife will be who shall oblige me most. There is no room for delay in a business which can only be approved when it is done. He then ordered the armory to be opened. The soldiers immediately seized the arms without regard to rule or military order, no distinction being observed between praetorians and legionaries, both of whom again indiscriminately assumed the shields and helmets of the auxiliary troops no tribune or centurion encouraged them every man acted on his own impulse and guidance and the vilest found their chief incitement in the dejection of the good meanwhile appalled by the roar of the increasing sedition and by the shouts which reached the city piso had overtaken galba who in the interval had quitted the palace and was approaching the forum Already Marius Celsus had brought back discouraging tidings. And now some advised that the emperor should return to the palace, others that he should make for the capital, many again that he should occupy the rostra, though most did but oppose the opinions of others, while, as ever happens in these ill-starred councils, plans for which the opportunity had slipped away seemed the best. It is said that Laco, without Galba's knowledge, meditated the death of Vinius, "'either hoping by this execution to appease the fury of the soldiers, "'or believing him to be an accomplice of Otho, "'or it may be out of mere hatred. "'The time and the place, however, made him hesitate. "'He knew that a massacre once begun is not easily checked. "'His plan, too, was disconcerted by a succession of alarming tidings, "'and the desertion of immediate adherents. "'So languid was now the zeal of those "'who had at first been eager to display their fidelity and courage.' Galba was hurried to and fro with every movement of the surging crowd. The halls and temples all around were thronged with spectators of this mournful sight. Not a voice was heard from the people, or even from the rabble. Everywhere were terror-stricken countenances, and ears turned to catch every sound. It was a scene neither of agitation nor of repose, but there reigned the silence of profound alarm and profound indignation. Otho, however, was told that they were arming the mob. He ordered his men to hurry on at full speed, and to anticipate the danger. Then did Roman soldiers rush forward, like men who had to drive a Volgeses or a Pecorus from the ancestral throne of the Arsicidae, not as though they were hastening to murder their aged and defenceless emperor. In all the terror of their arms, and at the full speed of their horses, they burst into the forum, thrusting aside the crowd and trampling on the Senate. Neither did the side of the capital— nor the sanctity of the overhanging temples, nor the thought of rulers past or future, could deter them from committing a crime which any one succeeding to power must avenge. When this armed array was seen to approach, the standard-bearer of the cohort that escorted Galba, he is said to have been one Attilius Virgilio, tore off and dashed upon the ground Galba's effigy. At this signal the feeling of all the troops declared itself plainly for Otho, The forum was deserted by the flying populace. Weapons were pointed against all who hesitated. Near the lake of Curtius, Galba was thrown out of his litter and fell to the ground, through the alarm of his bearers. His last words have been variously reported, according as men hated or admired him. Some have said that he asked in a tone of entreaty what wrong he had done, and begged a few days for the payment of the donative. The more general account is, that he voluntarily offered his neck to the murderers, and bade them haste and strike, if it seemed to be for the good of the commonwealth. To those who slew him mattered not what he said. About the actual murderer nothing is clearly known. Some have recorded the name of Terentius, an enrolled pensioner, others that of Licanius, but it is the current report that one Camurius, a soldier of the Fifteenth Legion, completely severed his throat— by threading his sword down upon it. The rest of the soldiers foully mutilated his arms and legs, for his breast was protected, and in their savage ferocity inflicted many wounds, even on the headless trunk. They next fell on Tivinius, and in his case also it is not known whether the fear of instant death choked his utterance, or whether he cried out that Otho had not given orders to slay him. Either he invented this in his terror, or he thus confessed his share in the conspiracy. His life and character incline us rather to believe that he was an accomplice in the crime, which he certainly caused. He fell in front of the temple of the divine Julius, and at the first blow, which struck him on the back of the knee, immediately afterwards Julius Carus, a legionary, ran him through the body. A noble example of manhood was on that day witnessed by our age in Sempronius Densis. He was a centurion in a cohort of the Praetorian Guard, and had been appointed by galba to escort piso rushing dagger in hand to meet the armed men and upbraiding them with their crime he drew the attention of the murderers on himself by his exclamations and gestures and thus gave piso wounded as he was an opportunity of escape piso made his way to the temple of vesta where he was admitted by the compassion of one of the public slaves who concealed him in his chamber there, not indeed through the sanctity of the place or its worship, but through the obscurity of his hiding-place, he obtained a respite from instant destruction, till there came, by Otho's direction and specially eager to slay him, Sulpicius Florus, of the British auxiliary infantry, to whom Galba had lately given the citizenship, and Statius Marsus, one of the bodyguard. Piso was dragged out by these men and slaughtered in the entrance of the temple. There was, we are told, no death of which Otho heard with the greater joy, no head which he surveyed with so insatiable a gaze. Perhaps it was that his mind was then for the first time relieved from all anxiety, and so had leisure to rejoice. Perhaps there was with Galba something to recall departed majesty, with Vinius some thought of old friendship, which troubled with mournful images even that ruthless heart. Piso's death, as that of an enemy and a rival, HE FELT TO BE A RIGHT AND LAWFUL SUBJECT OF REJOICING. THE HEADS WERE FIXED UPON POLES, AND CARRIED ABOUT AMONG THE STANDARDS OF THE COHORTS, CLOSE TO THE EAGLE OF THE LEGION, WHILE THOSE WHO HAD STRUCK THE BLOW, THOSE WHO HAD BEEN PRESENT, THOSE WHO, WHETHER TRULY OR FALSELY BOASTED OF THE ACT, AS OF SOME GREAT AND MEMORABLE ACHIEVEMENT, VIED IN DISPLAYING THEIR BLOOD-STAINED HANDS. Vitellius afterwards found more than one hundred and twenty memorials from persons who claimed a reward for some notable service on that day. All these persons he ordered to be sought out and slain, not to honour Galba, but to comply with the traditional policy of rulers, who thus provide protection for the present and vengeance for the future. One would have thought it a different senate, a different people. All rushed to the camp, outran those who were close to them, and struggled with those who were before— invade against Galba, praised the wisdom of the soldiers, covered the hand of Otho with kisses. The more insincere their demonstrations, the more they multiplied them. Nor did Otho repulse the advances of individuals, while he checked the greed and ferocity of the soldiers by word and look. They demanded that Marius Celsus, consul-elect, Galba's faithful friend to the very last moment, should be led to execution, loathing his energy and integrity as if they were vices. It was evident that they were seeking to begin massacre and plunder, and the prescription of all the most virtuous citizens, and Otho had not yet sufficient authority to prevent crime, though he could command it. He feigned anger, and ordered him to be loaded with chains, declaring that he was to suffer more signal punishment, and thus he rescued him from immediate destruction. Everything was then ordered according to the will of the soldiery. The Praetorians chose their own prefects. One was Plautius Firmus, who had been once in the ranks, had afterwards commanded the watch, and who, while Galba was yet alive, had embraced the cause of Otho. With him was associated Licinius Proculus, Otho's intimate friend, and consequently suspected of having encouraged his schemes. Flavius Sabinus they appointed prefect of the city, thus adopting Nero's choice, in whose reign he had held the same office, though many, in choosing him, had an eye to his brother Vespasian. A demand was then made, that the fees for furlough usually paid to the centurions should be abolished. These the common soldiers paid as a kind of annual tribute. A fourth part of every company might be scattered on furlough, or even loiter about the camp, provided that they paid the fees to the centurions. No one cared about the amount of the tax, or the way in which it was raised. "'It was by robbery, plunder, or the most servile occupations "'that the soldier's holiday was purchased. "'The man with the fullest purse was worn out with toil "'and cruel usage till he bought his furlough. "'His means exhausted by this outlay, "'and his energies utterly relaxed by idleness, "'the once rich and vigorous soldier returned to his company "'a poor and spiritless man. "'One after another was ruined by the same poverty and license, "'and rushed into mutiny and dissension.' and finally into civil war. Otho, however, not to alienate the affections of the centurions by an act of bounty to the ranks, promised that his own purse should pay these annual sums. It was undoubtedly a salutary reform, and was afterwards under good emperors established as a permanent rule of the service. Lacco, prefect of the city, who had been ostensibly banished to an island, was assassinated by an enrolled pensioner, sent on by Otho to do the deed. Marcianus Acellus, being but a freedman, was publicly executed. A day spent in crime found its last horror in the rejoicings that concluded it. The praetor of the city summoned the senate, the rest of the magistrates vied with each other in their flatteries. The senators hastily assembled and conferred by decree upon Otho the tribunatal office, the name of Augustus, and every imperial honor. All strove to extinguish the remembrance of those taunts and invectives, which had been thrown out at random, and which no one supposed were rankling in his heart. Whether he had forgotten, or only postponed his resentment, the shortness of his reign left undecided. The forum yet streamed with blood, when he was borne in a litter over heaps of dead to the capital, and thence to the palace. He suffered the bodies to be given up for burial, and to be burnt. For Piso, the last rites were performed by his wife Verania, and his brother Scribonianus for Vinius, by his daughter Crispina, their heads having been discovered and purchased from the murderers who had reserved them for sale. Piso, who was then completing his thirty-first year, had enjoyed more fame than good fortune. His brothers, Magnus and Crassus, had been put to death by Claudius and Nero, respectively. He was himself for many years in exile, for four days a Caesar, and Galba's hurried adoption of him only gave him this privilege over his elder brother, that he perished first. Vinius had lived to the age of fifty-seven, with many changes of character. His father was of a praetorian family. His maternal grandfather was one of the prescribed. He had disgraced himself in his first campaign when he served under the legate Calvisius Sabinus. That officer's wife, urged by a perverse curiosity to view the camp, entered it by night in the disguise of a soldier, and after extending the insulting frolic to the watches and general arrangements of the army, actually dared to commit the act of adultery in the headquarters. Vinius was charged with having participated in her guilt, and by order of Caius was loaded with irons. The altered time soon restored him to liberty. He then enjoyed an uninterrupted succession of honors, first filling the praetorship, and then commanding a legion with general satisfaction, but he subsequently incurred the degrading imputation of having pilfered a gold cup at the table of Claudius, who the next day directed that he alone should be served on earthenware. Yet as proconsul of Gallia Nabonensis he administered the government with strict integrity. When forced by his friendship with Galba to a dangerous elevation, he showed himself bold, crafty, and enterprising, and whether he applied his powers to vice or virtue was always equally energetic. His will was made void by his vast wealth, that of Piso owed its validity to its poverty. The body of Galba lay for a long time neglected, and subjected, through the license which the darkness permitted, to a thousand indignities, till Argius, his steward, who had been one of his slaves, gave it a humble burial in his master's private gardens. His head, which the settlers and camp-followers had fixed on a pole and mangled, was found only the next day in front of the tomb of Petrobius, a freedman of Nero's, whom Galba had executed. It was put with the body, which had by that time been reduced to ashes. Such was the end of Servius Galba, who in his seventy-three years had lived prosperously through the reigns of five emperors, and had been more fortunate under the rule of others than he was in his own. His family could boast an ancient nobility, his wealth was great. His character was of an average kind, rather free from vices than distinguished by virtues. He was not regardless of fame, nor yet vainly fond of it other men's money he did not covet, with his own he was parsimonious, with that of the state avaricious. To his freedmen and friends he showed a forbearance, which, when he had fallen into worthy hands, could not be blamed. When, however, these persons were worthless, he was even culpably blind. The nobility of his birth and the perils of the times made what was really indolence pass for wisdom. While in the vigour of life he enjoyed a high military reputation in Germany, as proconsul he ruled Africa with moderation, and, when advanced in years, showed the same integrity in eastern Spain. He seemed greater than a subject while he was yet in a subject's rank, and by common consent would have been pronounced equal to empire, had he never been emperor. The alarm of the capital, which trembled to see the atrocity of these recent crimes, and to think of the old character of Otho, was heightened into terror by the fresh news about Vitellius, news which had been suppressed before the murder of Galba, in order to make it appear that only the army of upper Germany had revolted. That two men, who for shamelessness, indolence, and profligacy, were the most worthless of mortals, had been selected, it would seem, by some fatality, to ruin the empire, became the open complaint, not only of the senate and the knights, who had some stake and interest in the country, but even of the common people. It was no longer to the late horrors of a dreadful peace, but to the recollections of the civil wars that men recurred, speaking of how the capital had been taken by Roman armies, how Italy had been wasted and the provinces spoiled, of Parsalia, Philippi, Perugia, and Mutina, and all the familiar names of the great public disasters. The world, they said, was well nigh turned upside down when the struggle for empire was between worthy competitors, yet the empire continued to exist after the victories of Caius Julius and Caesar Augustus the Republic would have continued to exist under Pompey and Brutus. And is it for Otho or for Vitellius that we are now to repair to the temples? Prayers for either would be impious. Vows for either a blasphemy, when from their conflict you can only learn that the conqueror must be the worse of the two. Some were speculating on Vespasian and the armies of the East. Vespasian was indeed preferable to either, yet they shuddered at the idea of another war or of other massacres. Even about Vespasian there were doubtful rumours, and he, unlike any of his predecessors, was changed for the better by power. I will now describe the origin and occasion of the revolt of Vitellius. After the destruction of Julius Vindix and his whole force, the army, flushed with the delights of plunder and glory, as men who might well be who had been fortunate enough to triumph without toil or danger in a most lucrative war, began to hanker after campaigns and battles, and to prefer prize-money to pay. They had long endured a service which the character of the country, and of the climate, and the rigors of military discipline rendered at once unprofitable and severe. But that discipline, inexorable as it is in times of peace, is relaxed by civil strife, when on both sides are found the agents of corruption, and treachery goes unpunished. They had men, arms, and horses, more than enough for all purposes of utility and show, but before the war they had been acquainted only with the companies and squadrons of their own force, as the various armies were separated from each other by the limits of their respective provinces. But the legions, having been concentrated to act against Vindix, and having thus learned to measure their own strength against the strength of Gaul, were now on the look-out for another war and for new conflicts. They called their neighbors not allies as of old, but the enemy and the vanquished nor did that part of gaul which borders on the rhine fail to espouse the same cause and to the bitterest hostility in inflaming the army against the Galvanists, that being the name which in their contempt for vindex they had given to the party the rage first excited against the sequani and adui extended to other states in proportion to their wealth and they revelled in imagination on the storm of cities the plunder of estates the sack of dwelling-houses But besides the rapacity and arrogance which are the special faults of superior strength, they were exasperated by the bravadoes of the Gallic people, who, in a spirit of insult to the army, boasted of how they had been relieved by Galba from a fourth part of their tribute, and had received grants from the state. There was also a report, ingenuously spread and recklessly believed, to the effect that the legions were being decimated, and all the most energetic centurions dismissed from all quarters arrived the most alarming tidings. The reports from the capital were unfavourable, while the disaffection of the colony of Lugdunum, which obstinately adhered to Nero, gave rise to a multitude of rumours. But it was in the army itself, in its hatreds, its fears, and even in the security which a review of its own strength inspired it, that there was the most abundant material for the exercise of imagination and credulity. Just before December 1st, in the preceding year, Alius Vitellius had visited lower Germany, and had carefully inspected the winter quarters of the legions. Many had their rank restored to them, sentences of degradation were cancelled, and marks of disgrace partially removed. In most cases he did but court popularity. In some he exercised a sound discretion, making a salutary change from the meanness and rapacity which Fonteius Capito had shown in bestowing and withdrawing promotion." But he seemed a greater personage than a simple consul-legate, and all his acts were invested with an unusual importance. Though sterner judges pronounced Vitellius to be a man of low taste, those who were partial to him attributed to gentility and good nature the immoderate and indiscriminate prodigality, with which he gave away what was his own, and squandered what did not belong to him. Besides this, men themselves eager for power were ready to represent his many vices as virtues. As there were in both armies many of obedient and quiet habits, so there were many who were as unprincipled as they were energetic, but distinguished above all for boundless ambition and singular daring were the legates of the legions, Fabius Valens and Aelianus Cassina. One of these men, Valens, had taken offense against Galba, under the notion that he had not shown proper gratitude for his services in discovering to him the hesitation of Virginius and crushing the plans of Capito. He now began to urge Vitellius to action. He enlarged on the zeal of the soldiery. "'You have,' he said, "'everywhere great reputation. You will find nothing to stop you in Hordionus Flaccus. Britain will be with you. The German auxiliaries will follow your standard. All the provinces waver in their allegiance. The empire is held on the precarious tenure of an aged life, and must shortly pass into other hands. You have only to open your arms, and to meet the advances of fortune.' it was well for Virginius to hesitate, the scion of a mere equestrian family, and the son of a father unknown to fame. He would have been unequal to empire, had he accepted it, and yet been safe though he refused it. But from the honours of a father who was thrice consul, was censor and colleague of Caesar, Vitellius has long since derived an imperial rank, while he has lost the security that belongs to a subject. These arguments roused the indolent temper of the man, yet roused him rather to wish than to hope for the throne. Meanwhile, however, in upper Germany, Cachina, young and handsome, of commanding stature and of boundless ambition, had attracted the favour of the soldiery by his skilful oratory and his dignified mien. This man had, when Questor and Batica attached him with zeal to the party of Galba, who had appointed him, young as he was, to the command of a legion. But it being afterwards discovered that he had embezzled the public money, Galba directed that he should be prosecuted for peculation. Catina, grievously offended, determined to throw everything into confusion, and under the disasters of his country to conceal his private dishonor. There were not wanting in the army itself the elements of civil strife. The whole of it had taken part in the war against Spindex. It had not passed over to Galba till Nero fell. Even then, in this transference of its allegiance, it had been anticipated by the armies of lower Germany." Besides this, the Traveri, the Lingones, and the other states which Galba had most seriously injured by his severe edicts, and by the confiscation of their territory, were particularly close to the winter quarters of the legions. Thence arose seditious conferences, a soldierly demoralized by intercourse with the inhabitants of the country, and tendencies in favor of Virginius, which could easily be to the profit of any other person. End of Book One, Part Three